We're beginning our fall evening series on the book of James tonight, and we'll be continuing through James for most of the next three months or so. We have the tagline, Faith That Works for this series, because James is really concerned with faithfully making sense of our lives in this world and about how we work out the faith that we have. This evening, I'll be reading James 1, 1 to 18. Before we read, let me give you just a little bit about the author and audience of this, le- um, this letter. James was one of the most significant leaders in the early church in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, for example, there's a church council, and we see this James stand up and speak, and everyone agrees. So this is a sort of respected preacher, leader, a man who spoke with a lot of weight in the early church. For the audience, if we look at Acts chapter 8, after the death of Stephen, we see that most of the believers were scattered out from Jerusalem to different places in Judea and Samaria. So James is writing to his congregation who have been scattered, who have had to flee from persecution and have gone out and are now living in different places. Let's read James 1, verses 1 to 18. James, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. As I studied this text this week, I noticed that James provides a lot of images in these verses. And so tonight we're going to approach the text through a number of the images that it presents. The first image that James 1 gives us tonight is that of a runner successfully enduring to the end of a race. The image first shows up in James 1 verses 2 and 3 when James tells his readers to rejoice in trials of many kinds because the testing of their faith develops perseverance 
or you could say endurance. And that perseverance makes us mature and complete. Now, James is making a pretty counterintuitive point here. It's not normal for us to say, hooray, trials. I'm so happy to be experiencing these troubles. Yippee. A verse like this, and there are plenty of them in Scripture, can be a tough pill to swallow. And sometimes in the midst of our sufferings, we need different medicine than what James is giving here. Sometimes when trials come, we need comfort in the face of things we don't and can't understand. Sometimes when trials come, we need assurance that God really is control, in control and he will take care of us. But sometimes this verse from James is the right medicine for us and we need to be called to rejoice in trials because those very trials give us the opportunity to grow in our faith. Trials, says James, gives us the opportunity to practice endurance in the faith. And practice is an important word there. James is saying that trials give believers an opportunity like practice gives to athletes. When athletes in any event practice, it gives them the challenge and the opportunity to grow. Practice is the time that basketball players hone their dribbling and their shooting skills. Practice is the time that the sprinter figures out how to shave just a few extra seconds off his time. When athletes practice, they become better players of the game, better runners of the race. People only gain skills and muscles only gain strength through resistance and through trials. Trials and suffering, well, they strip away our comfort, our complacency, and our excuses, and they give us the opportunity to really exercise our faith in ways that matter. You don't test the strength of an athlete by watching them as they sit on a couch You test their strength by watching them actually perform the event, by watching them actually run the race. Now, there are different routes to spiritual maturity, but often the path to really intense and serious growth in Christianity goes right through significant suffering. Often the people you meet with the deepest faith are the ones who have gone through the deepest trials. Now, often when I visit people as a pastor, people who are going through long-term struggles, over the course of their struggles, I see people's faith grow and deepen in remarkable and amazing ways. We certainly can and do believe in Christ when times are good, but when trials come, when we really need to hold on to Christ, when we need to practice our faith or just give it up, that is the time that when believers endure, our faith grows more and more complete. So when trials come, we can rejoice in the challenge and the opportunity to grow. Trials develop perseverance, and perseverance leads us on to maturity and faith. Now James picks up this athletic imagery again in verse 12 when he says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, when we read that, we probably think automatically of a gold or silver crown like a king or queen might wear, but James had something different in mind. In the ancient world, when, the, when someone won a race or won some sort of athletic event, often he would be crowned with a crown of leaves. The person who had embraced the challenge and had endured through it and won 
they got the crown. The crown that James is talking about in these verses is exactly like an Olympian's gold medal. It's about recognition and honor being given to a trained and disciplined athlete who kept their eye on the goal and who persevered through to the end. So when James talks about people persevering under trial, he's giving us this imagery of an athlete enduring, embracing the challenge of the grind, an athlete who got through suffering and trials to reach the pinnacle of accomplishment. The believer who perseveres through trials becomes complete and mature, and they will receive the crown of life at the end. So we can take a moment and we can admire this image that James gives us of a successful athlete and hero. The person who was tested, who developed perseverance, and who became complete. Not lacking anything, as James says. But that's not an image that we can really live up, live up to. Just like, well, most of us, all of us, will never be gold medal winning Olympic athletes. We don't have what it takes to get the crown of life on our own. We don't have the focus. We don't have the endurance. We don't have the perseverance to make it through all our trials. Instead of finishing the race and deserving the crown, we're back a lap, dropping the baton and wondering what's going on. Instead of staying on the straight and narrow path that God calls us to, we're taking detours. We're wandering off here and there and everywhere. Now, in this passage, James gives us several images of things that pull us in all kinds of different directions, here and there and everywhere, instead of helping us to persevere on toward the goal. In verse 5, James says that those who lack wisdom should ask God for it, and he'll give generously. But then in verses 6 and 7, James says that the man who asks, when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, when James talks about doubt, we don't need to hear that as condemnation of our honest questions or of our sincere occasional wondering. Genuine faith built on the foundation of Christ has room and has times for honest doubt, for questions, for wrestling with God. James is not too concerned about people who have moments of uncertainty or times when they have to question God. What this passage is really concerned with is what one commentator calls long-term double-mindedness and lack of spiritual integrity. The point here is that the Lord isn't going to respond to a person who's always going back and forth, a person who's always hedging their bets, a person who's never really willing to commit to Christ and follow through, a person who knows the truth but doesn't really care to follow it most of the time. Thanks very much. Doubt and double-mindedness like that is what makes people like waves on the sea. And water in the sea doesn't really have any fixed form or direction. It just flows around. It goes in and out, up and down, and round and round. But it's never stable, and it never really makes any progress. The waves of the sea ebb and flow, but they have no foundation, no stability, and they just get blown and tossed everywhere. Doubt and double-mindedness have that kind of effect on our spiritual life. It breaks down our foundation, 
and it leaves us blown back and forth and twisted into all kinds of different shapes. Doubt pulls us away from Christian maturity and into all kinds of confusion. And after James talks about doubt, he goes on to talk about poverty and riches. Now later in this letter, we'll see that James has some very specific and significant things to say to the poor and to the rich. But tonight I want to look at what James says in terms of the point that riches don't last. And the people who depend on their riches don't last either. James tells us in verses 10 through 12, The one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Things may look really great for the rich person right now. Pastures may be green as far as the eye can see. The barns may be full or the bank balance may be great. But the rich person will still pass away in the heat of life. Money, power, and wealth give people the illusion that they can handle whatever comes up. Now, riches can be a blessing from God, but when taken that way, they're a trap from the devil. Even wealth can't really keep trouble at bay. Jesus once told the story of a rich man who was planning to build new barns to hold his whole harvest and planning to have a life of ease and prosperity and fun. But then that very night as he went to sleep dreaming of his bigger barns and his better life, he died. And all the good of his wealth burned away into nothingness. Wealth brings this great temptation to go away from trusting God and growing in Him and instead to depend on ourselves. Riches cushion us from the trouble of life and they can give us this sense of invulnerability, this sense that we can stand on our own two feet and we don't need to be always running to God to help us out. Riches pull us away from Christian completion and maturity and pull us into depending on our own resources. And without enduring faith, all of the resources in the world ultimately fade away like dying plants and fading flowers. Well, a little further on in verses 14 to 15, James gives us a couple more images of disordered desire. He begins there by saying, God isn't tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt anyone. And in fact, it's our own evil desires which lead us into temptation, which lead us to sin, which lead us to death. And James uses a giving birth image there to talk about that move from desire to temptation to sin to death. But he also gives us a fishing image in those verses. At the end of verse 14, James says that when people are tempted by their evil desires, they're dragged away and enticed. This doesn't quite come across in translation, but James is giving a word picture of a fish being lured, hooked, and caught. If we're going to grow through trials and grow deep in our faith, we need to keep pushing toward the gospel. But here the text shows us a picture of people who are, who are being distracted, who are being pulled away into other things by their disordered desires. It's like a fish that's swimming along on its way, and suddenly it sees something bright and shiny over to the side, and it looks tasty. So the fish swims over there and grabs a meal. But then this shiny and exciting thing turns out to have a hook in it. And before the fisherman knows what's hit it, 
or before the fish knows what's hit it, the fisherman has set the hook and the fish is being dragged away to a place that it doesn't want to go. The fish wants no part of the fisherman's plan, but once the bait is swallowed and the hook is in, the fish doesn't have a choice anymore. It's been pulled off track, it's been lured by the bait, and now it's gone down the path to its doom. Now, most people are more like that fish than, than we really want to admit. Even if we start out on the right path, there's all these shiny, attractive things that tempt us to just take little detours. There's all these things that look like great fun to just grab a taste of. And we can't get rid of those desires. Even if we manage to avoid the actual sin, we still have these wandering eyes. We still have these tendencies that keep leading us into temptation and that keep dragging us towards sin. In one of his books, C.S. Lewis challenges his reader to go a whole week or even a day without sinning at all. Not even the tiniest little sin. And then Lewis goes on just assuming that none of his readers would be able to get through even a day without sinning. And I think he probably has that right. But let's take it even a step further back. Let's say that you are an incredible person and you can manage to avoid sin for a whole day. Great. But let me ask you this. Can you avoid sinful desires for a whole day? Can you avoid, even for a day or an hour, having your heart or your mind somehow or other distract you from the goal of Christian perfection? John Calvin called the human heart a factory of idols. Along those lines, we can call the human heart and the human mind factories of evil desires. Even at our best, even when we are working as hard as we can to endure to the end of the race, we keep having something in us always pulling us off to the side, always pulling us in the wrong direction, always pulling us apart. It's not just that we are guilty of sinning. It's that sin has gotten deep, deep into our hearts and it's corrupted us. The evil in the world has gotten inside of us. And it makes us want to take the bait of sin. And once we take the bait, we're hooked and we're stuck. Think of your favorite sin, if you like. Maybe for you it's anger or gluttony or maybe it's pornography. Maybe you have some kind of addicted behavior. Maybe you have an unhealthy focus on your image in one way or another. Maybe you're proud. All of us have something that enslaves us. And maybe we start out just dabbling, thinking, I can do this once, no problem. I can do this twice, no problem. I am still in control. We get lured in. We get enticed. And then the hook gets set. And we're snared. And we get dragged away. And we can't get out. We have desires for evil things. And we desire good things in evil ways. And that leads us into temptation and that leads us into sin, and sin leads to death. Our, our disordered desires pull us in all kinds of directions. Instead of staying consistent on the path, we are always changing and shifting. But James tells us that God, our Father, doesn't change like that. Our own abilities and desires change and shift, but God stays the same. And if we ask in faith for what we need to continue in faith, God will be faithful. 
verse 17 of James 1 tells us not only that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, but also that our Father does not change like the shifting shadows. God is the great heavenly light of our lives. James is giving us a subtle astronomical image here. You can play it out in a couple different ways, but probably the most obvious is to think about the difference between the moon and the sun. The moon waxes and wanes. It's bigger sometimes, it's smaller other times. Sometimes it gives some light, sometimes even a lot of light, and sometimes it gives no light at all. And even at its best, the moon isn't a very good guide. It leaves a lot of things in the shadows, and it's always changing. But the sun is always there, and it gives good light. So if you, if you really want to know where you're going, then you need to look at things in the light of the sun, not in the power of other things. By ourselves, we can't see the right way to go. If we think of endurance as running the race toward Christian perfection without the light of God, without the sun in our lives, we can't even see the track that we're supposed to follow. The only way that we can persevere to true maturity is if God shows us the way. And of course, the clearest way that God shows us his light is in Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus once told his listeners, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If we follow Jesus, he shows us the way to go. Doubt, depending on ourselves, all our disordered desires try to lure us off the path and get us to go some different way. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, if we keep our eyes on the Son of God, he leads us on the right path. And he leads us home. And ultimately, we will receive the crown of life. And it's not just that God shows us the light. If we're being tossed around by the waves and the wind of doubt, or if we're depending on riches that fade away, or if we're being tempted and enticed away by temptations, we need more than just light on our situation. We need to be changed. We need a new foundation, a new source of security, a whole new set of of desires. And that ultimately is what God gives us. And that ultimately, the new heart that God gives us, is what enables us to grow into mature faith. Verse 18 says that God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God is our unchanging light. And God also brings us to a whole new kind of life. Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Heavenly Father. We aren't locked into some kind of white-knuckled endurance. Just hang on and do the best you can. God doesn't come to us like some kind of crazed Olympic coach and tell us that we need to be faster and better spiritually. Instead, if any of us lacks wisdom, if any of us lacks anything, we should ask God, and God will give generously and without finding fault to help us grow as Christians. Matthew 7 tells us that if we go to God and ask for what we need to persevere to maturity in the faith, 
If we ask, it will be given to us. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be open to us. In reform circles, we sometimes talk about the perseverance of the saints. And by that, we don't mean that we believers somehow have it in ourselves to persevere to the end. Instead, we mean that God, in his grace, pulls us through. God himself preserves us to the end. If we are one of God's people, God gives us new life, and God carries us through. We need the image of the athlete and the hero, the one who embraces trials, the one who runs and runs and runs the race. We need that image to encourage us to endure. We need that encouragement to work out our faith as believers. But at the same time, it's God who works in us to bring us to maturity and completion. Maybe more than the image of the gold, um, the Olympic athlete with the gold medal, maybe more than that, we need the image of all of us believers as God's little children. In God's eyes, We are the children that he has brought to life. We are the children that he takes care of. We are the children that he gives everything that they need to grow. And sometimes when trials come, our Lord lets go of our hands just a little bit and gives us the opportunity to walk in faith. In the end, all of God's children will be able to run the race of faith perfectly. But here and now, God generously gives us whatever we need to take little steps day by day by day. And as we persevere, we're also preserved by God through all our trials. God is really hugely pleased with our little baby steps as we learn to walk in faith. But God is also at work within us, and he intends to make all of us into spiritual champions, victors in the race of faith. Blessed are all of us who persevere under trial, because when we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him.